You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 327 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last couple of episodes to talk about the two army commanders, Major General George Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, and General Robert E. Lee, the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia. As for the fighting that had broken out at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st, we said there was actually a lull in the action for a couple of hours after the Iron Brigade drove the Confederates out of the Herbst Woodlot, south of the Chambersburg Pike, and after the fight at the railroad cut, there just north of the road. With that, the fighting along McPherson's Ridge was over for the moment, and the lull in the action lasted through the early part of the afternoon. During the fighting that morning that was taking place there on the western outskirts of Gettysburg, the town's residents had to start to deal with the fact that a battle had broken out on their very doorstep. Ten-year-old Gates Fainstock would recall years later that he, quote, could see the fighting off on Seminary Ridge. We were not in direct line of fire, but saw an occasional shell go over the house, having a good time. Well, from a 10-year-old's perspective, the fighting may have seemed like entertainment, but for residents with a um, more mature perspective, well, it was shocking and frightening. Sally Broadhead, who left her home west of the Diamond in the center of town, said, I took my child and went to the house of a friend. As we passed up the street, we met wounded men coming in from the field. When we saw them, we, for the first time, began anxiously to ask, will our army be whipped? While there were some residents, like Sally Broadhead, who were out and about on the streets, most townspeople remained in their homes, where many started to receive unexpected visitors. Jenny McCreary related how, quote, Before we fully realized there was a battle, wounded men were brought into our houses and laid side by side in our halls and first story rooms. In many cases, carpets were so saturated with blood as to be unfit for further use. Walls were bloodstained, as well as books that were used for pillows. The first public building that was opened for hospital purposes was the Lutheran Church on Chambersburg Street. 
Forty men were laid in the lecture room and one hundred in the church proper, beds being improvised by laying boards on top of the pews. Into all the hospitals our women went freely and gladly to help in the care of the wounded, showing kindness alike to all, seeming to forget that any were enemies. One of my neighbors, who is ordinarily a very retiring woman, was perhaps the first to enter a hospital. Seeing the first wounded men carried into the church, she gathered up old linen and such things as she thought would be needed and went straight away to their relief. As Jenny McCreary's account makes clear, even as wounded men seeking help made their way to private homes in town, at the same time other buildings in Gettysburg, like the Lutheran Church, were quickly transformed into military hospitals. According to Federal Surgeon A.S. Cox of Cutler's Brigade, he commandeered, quote, a large hotel on the north side of the town, opposite to the railroad depot, for a hospital. At the time we took possession of the building, it was filled with guests, and no one seemed to expect much of a battle. But in a very short time, the wounded were brought in, in great numbers, and the guests and proprietors left without much order in their going, leaving us in quiet and undisputed possession. The trickle of wounded men that made their way into town beginning on Wednesday morning would soon turn into a stream and then a flood as the fighting started up again and intensified that afternoon. Before the fighting was over two days later, not just homes and buildings in Gettysburg would be overrun with the wounded, but in the surrounding countryside, houses and barns and places like the county almshouse buildings outside of town would be turned into aid stations and hospitals and packed often to overflowing with the bloody, broken bodies of the thousands upon thousands of wounded men, whose care we'll talk about in more detail in a future episode. In military terms, the first day's battle at Gettysburg is defined as a meeting engagement. In other words, it was no set-piece battle that both commanding generals had prepared for, but instead it was an improvised, unplanned-for affair, with units of both armies arriving on the field at different times throughout the day, and for the most part, entering the action either division by division or brigade by brigade. What we've looked at so far, that is the combat on the morning of July 1st, was just the start of what proved to be a fierce, day-long fight. As the hours passed that Wednesday, additional forces arrived on the battlefield north and west of town, so that, as we'll see, by day's end, the soldiers of four Confederate divisions, two from Hill's Corps and two from Ewell's Corps, will have slugged it out with the men of two Federal Corps, the 1st and 11th. As you guys will recall, back at the end of episode number 324, we talked about what happened in the immediate aftermath of the fighting in the Herbst woodlot and at the railroad cut. As, on the Confederate side, Harry Heath reorganized his division after Archer's and Davis's brigades had both come tumbling back. And Dorsey Pender brought the men of his division forward, positioning them astride the Chambersburg Pike 
closer to the front line. Having reset his division, Heath then did what he probably should have done earlier. He waited for further instructions. Meanwhile, on the federal side, Abner Doubleday, who, as senior division commander, had taken command of the First Corps when John Reynolds was killed, took advantage of the lull in the action to sort out and strengthen his lines on McPherson's Ridge. Again, we'll just remind you that at the end of episode number 324, we talked about the arrival of the rest of the First Corps and the positioning of those units, so we won't go over it again here, except to repeat that when Doubleday inherited command of the Corps upon the death of Reynolds, he had no knowledge of Reynolds' plans or intentions. Doubleday could only assume that Reynolds had intended to hold this position on McPherson's Ridge west of Gettysburg, and so Doubleday determined he would now do all he could to hold on to it. At the end of that show, we said that for the moment, on the Federal side, the First Corps stood alone at Gettysburg, but help would soon be arriving in the form of Major General Oliver Otis Howard's 11th Corps. The 11th Corps had set out from its campsites near Emmitsburg, Maryland, about 8.30 that morning, with orders to follow the 1st Corps to Gettysburg. To ease the congestion on the roads and to speed the march, Howard had one division, under Francis Barlow, follow in the footsteps of the 1st Corps up the Emmitsburg Road, while his other two divisions, under Carl Schertz and Adolf von Steinwehr, approached Gettysburg along the Tawny Town Road. At age 32, Oliver Howard was the youngest corps commander in the Army of the Potomac. He was a military professional, a member of the West Point class of 1854, but he was also a deeply religious man and fervent abolitionist. And before the start of the Civil War, while teaching mathematics at his alma mater, He had also been studying theology with an Episcopal priest, with the idea of going into the ministry. However, with the outbreak of war, he set aside any ministerial plans and devoted himself to the Union cause. Although his religious beliefs and being an abolitionist didn't exactly make him the most popular man in the army, either with his fellow generals or with the men he commanded, No one could doubt Howard's personal bravery. His right arm had been shattered the previous year at the Battle of Fair Oaks outside Richmond, necessitating amputation. Rising from regimental to brigade and later to division command, Howard was appointed commander of the 11th Corps in April 1863. We'll talk more about the soldiers of the Hard Luck 11th Corps in a later episode, but for now we'll point out that about half of Howard's soldiers were either German by birth or ancestry, and as such they had suffered greatly from the prejudices of the men in the Army's other corps, and were unfairly scapegoated for the Union disaster at Chancellorsville. On the morning of July 1st, Howard had ridden ahead of his men, wanting to get to Gettysburg to consult with John Reynolds, when, along the way, one of Reynolds' aides galloped up, and breathlessly informed Howard that there was fighting going on at Gettysburg, and Reynolds' orders were for him to bring his men up to the town quickly. Howard sent messengers racing off with instructions for his division commanders to hurry along their columns, 
and then he continued making his way toward Gettysburg. Late that morning, when still several miles from town, the 11th Corps got those hurry-up orders, and the officers put their men to the double-quick to get to Gettysburg as quickly as possible. In the ranks of Howard's jogging, panting, sweating men was Sergeant Amos Humiston. In many ways, the 33-year-old Humiston was typical of the older soldiers who had joined the Union Army in the second year of the war. He had thought of enlisting in 1861, but he was a family man with a wife and three children, and it seemed his duty was to stay home and take care of them. However, setbacks in the summer of 1862 prompted Abraham Lincoln to issue a call for 300,000 more troops, an initiative that was met with one final patriotic outpouring of enlistment, including many men who, like Humiston, had hesitated at the first call because of family responsibilities. All across the North, husbands and wives held hushed and earnest conversations after children were in bed, and concluded that if their country needed men that much, then maybe the man of the house had better go. The surge of enlistments was celebrated by James Sloan Gibbon's popular song, We Are Coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 More. In the song, Gibbons has his poetic recruits declare, We've left our plows and workshops, our wives and children, too. Amos Humiston left his harness maker's shop in Portsville, New York, in the western part of the state, and said goodbye to his wife, Philanda, and his children. Frank had turned eight years old that spring. Alice was six. Fred was four. On July 1st, Amos carried a photograph of the three children in his pocket as he hustled along toward Gettysburg in the ranks of the 154th New York. That photo was his prized possession. Belanda had sent it to him less than two months before. In reply, he had written to her saying, It pleased me more than anything that you could have sent me, how I want to see them and their mother. As we record and release this episode, it's Father's Day, and there are probably many fathers listening to the show who can relate to Sergeant Humiston's yearning to see his wife and children again. But on that hot, sultry July morning, Amos Humiston's dreams of seeing his family again would have to remain just that, a dream he held close to his heart, as he and his comrades in the 11th Corps jogged toward Gettysburg. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Even after their officers double-quicked them most of the last several miles to Gettysburg, there would be no rest for the soldiers of the 11th Corps once they reached the southern outskirts of the town. That's because Howard, who had learned that he was now in command of the field after Reynolds' death, had received reports from Buford and Doubleday that a large Confederate force was approaching Gettysburg from the north. Howard decided to send Barlow's and Schertz's divisions right through town in an effort, once they came out the other side, to link up with the right of the First Corps, somewhere in the area of Oak Hill, in order to meet this new threat. Howard kept the two brigades of von Steinwehr's division behind to defend Cemetery Hill, just to the south of town, telling Steinwehr, We must hold this hill. Howard then rode ahead through town with Barlow, hoping to effect that junction with Doubleday's right flank. But he would be too late, because even as the Federal soldiers hurried through the streets of Gettysburg, cheered along by some of the townspeople still out and about, the Confederates of Robert Rhodes' division of Ewell's Corps were just then arriving on Oak Hill. Rhodes' division, the largest in Lee's army with 8,000 men, approached Gettysburg that morning from the north along the Newville Road, accompanied by Dick Yule. When his division was within several miles of town, Rhodes heard the sounds of battle from off to his right. In response, Rhodes veered off cross-country with four of his five brigades, angling southwest, following the crest of the ridgeline that emerged onto Oak Hill. Meanwhile, Rhodes' 5th Brigade, Georgians, led by George Doles, would continue moving south in order to cover the division's left, until Jubal Early's division, advancing farther east down the Harrisburg Road, could catch up. When they arrived on Oak Hill, Rhodes and Yule had a commanding view of the morning's battlefield. As we've mentioned previously, if you visit Gettysburg today and make a stop at the Eternal Light Peace Memorial, as you look south, you can take in this same view and appreciate the tactical importance of Oak Hill. When Robert Rhodes and Dick Yule arrived on Oak Hill, it was during that lull in the fighting that we've mentioned. But they could clearly see Heath's men, backed up by Pender's division, reforming on Hur's Ridge, while to their front, they saw Federal First Corps soldiers resetting themselves on McPherson's Ridge and north of the railroad cut. Rhodes and Ewell realized immediately that Rhodes' division had come onto the field squarely on the right flank of the Federal First Corps line. Rhodes' arrival at this spot couldn't have worked out better if he and Ewell had planned it. But then, off to their left, the two generals saw another Federal force racing north through Gettysburg and deploying into lines of battle on the broad, open fields south and east of Oak Hill. This was Howard's 11th Corps arriving on the battlefield. 
Ewell ordered up Rhodes Artillery under Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Carter, and soon enough Carter had 16 guns wheeled into position on Oak Hill, throwing shot and shell toward the exposed right of the First Corps line, and also over toward the panning, exhausted soldiers of the 11th Corps. It was about this time, eight miles away in Cashtown, after A.P. Hill had galloped off to find out what was happening at Gettysburg, that Robert E. Lee was talking to Robert Anderson and admitting that without Jeb Stuart and his horsemen, he, Lee, had no idea what was in front of them, whether it was the entire Army of the Potomac or just a part of it. At much the same time, and much like Lee, George Meade was at his headquarters at Tawnytown, 14 miles from Gettysburg, and trying to get a sense of what was happening from the reports he'd been receiving throughout the morning hours. Then, upon learning of Reynolds' death, Meade dispatched 2nd Corps Commander Major General Winfield Scott Hancock to Gettysburg to take command of the forces there and judge whether it was a good place to fight a battle. Hancock started the journey to Gettysburg riding in the back of an ambulance for several miles so he could examine some maps. Hancock was well on his way to Gettysburg when the lull in the fighting ended and the battle was resumed because Rhodes, from his commanding position atop Oak Hill, had reopened the ball. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Generals of Gettysburg by Larry Tagg. We found this book to be a handy reference, and if you're interested in learning more about the over 130 brigade, division, and corps commanders who led troops at Gettysburg, then we recommend this book find its way into your Civil War library. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 107. It's the 11th and last show in the Jeb Stewart story arc. And then since we didn't record last week, we have quite a few new members to thank this time around. These are folks who have went over to Patreon and signed up for the Strawfoot Brigade to support the podcast. So thanks to Thomas, Mike, Kevin, Neil, and Stu. Bob, Tony, Greg, Stephen, Warren, and Dr. John. Andrew, Jordan, David, Jason, and Dustin. Glenn, Eva, and Sean. And thanks to Kyle, Michael, Robert, Jeffrey, and Greg for their donations. Thanks, everyone, for your support of the podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time as the fighting starts up again at Gettysburg on the afternoon of July 1st. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.